Welcome to the RE Podcast, the first dedicated RE podcast for students and teachers. My name is Louisa Jane Smith and this is the RE Podcast, the podcast for those of you who think RE is boring, which it is, and I'll prove it to you. In this new little mini-series, I want to explore the Sermon on the Mount. In this episode, I'm going to give a little bit of context and then dive into the second section, which is on prayer. Now, let's get our words clarified. A sermon is a talk given by a religious leader which explains religious teachings. This particular one was said by Jesus on a mountain, hence Sermon on the Mount. You have to remember there were no PA systems or microphones 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. So speaking from a high place allowed people to hear. And there were crowds of people listening to Jesus. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of Jesus' TED Talk. It serves as an overview of things Jesus felt he needed to say. Last episode, we looked at the Beatitudes, a list of people that God will reward in heaven due to their suffering on earth. This part on prayer is nestled among a series of other mini teachings, which I'll explore next episode. And it begins like this. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. I love this. Partly because Jesus was secretly saying this directly to a specific type of person, but without actually naming them. The Pharisees. It's not clear whether there were Pharisees in the crowd listening to Jesus' speech, but there were certainly people listening who would be fully aware of such people and probably let out a little smirk. Let me tell you about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were experts in Jewish law, hence hanging around synagogues. They were the Jewish lawyers at the time, if you will. They were a stickler for the rules. And remember, there were 613 of them in Judaism. And the Pharisees were quick to get their knickers in a twist if anyone broke any of these laws. Jesus insinuates here, but without specifically naming them, that they were very slightly up themselves and thought they were better than everyone else. They loved to show off about how holy they were, and they gave the impression that they followed every one of those 613 laws. But clearly they didn't. Jesus calls them hypocrites. This means they said one thing and did another, so they gave the impression that they were holier than thou by praying loudly in public for everyone to hear, and made a big fuss if anyone broke any of the rules but very likely broke many of the rules themselves in private. Jesus instead suggests, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now I want you to notice the use of the word Father here, but I'll come back to that in a second. But essentially Jesus is saying, Keep it real, people! He continues, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now this is interesting. The version I have just read here translate an original word to pagans. The original word used is ethnos, a Greek word which means nations. And it's where we get our word ethnic from. I think this potentially shows the subconscious bias of the translators here. 
it was advantageous of them to demonise pagans at the time. However, which nation Jesus is talking about here, we're unsure about. It could be the nation of Israel, it could be the Romans, the Greeks. But I think the overall message of this section here is one of brevity. There is no need to be loquacious. By the way, I have just learnt the word loquacious and I really like it, so I want to use it as often as possible. It's just a poncy way of saying talkative. God knows what you want before you ask him. Of course he does. He's omniscient. So does that mean that praying is pointless? I mean, what's the point of telling God something he already knows? Well, sometimes I ask children questions in my classroom that I already know the answer to. Sude, can you tell me the meaning of the word reconciliation? I do not ask this question because I don't know what the word reconciliation means. I'm not doing it for my benefit. I'm doing it for their recall, to check their understanding. Similarly, prayer is for the prayer. It is not for God. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Well, obvs, you start any conversation with the person's name that you're talking to. But notice the use of the word our. There are two possible reasons for this. One, Jesus is uniting himself with his listeners by emphasising his humanness and their shared relationship with God. Or two, this prayer is meant to be prayed in groups. More about that later. The other thing to notice is the use of the word Father. I think we are so used to hearing God referred to as Father that we often don't realise how radical it was at the time. It's quite an intimate and loving salutation. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as Lord, a mark of respect and reverence. There is a distance between God and humans. Referring to God as Father would have been radically different from any way that God had previously been understood. Now, we have to be careful not to impose our Western 21st century understanding of a dad. Jewish fathers were the head of the household, had to provide for their family, and had absolute authority over the rest of the family. But I still think it would have been of comfort to people listening to this prayer to refer to God or to understand God as a father. Hallowed be your name. Okay, so hallowed isn't a word we really use anymore, but it means revered or honoured. So Jesus is saying, when you pray, start by praising God. I think this is great advice. So often when we go to talk to people, we start by saying what we want to talk about. Hey, guess what happens to me? Or, oh, I'm having such a rubbish day today. Actually, start by acknowledging something great about the person you are talking to. In this case, you are recognising that God is holy. I think if a believer establishes this first, Jesus realised that it will impact one, what they say, and two, how they say the rest of the prayer. Lord, would you like a little boost? Thank you. I have a sweet one oh, for you. I got one. As many of you know, the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father is one of the central prayers for Christians. And it contains the line, hallowed be thy name. But one little girl, she heard it a little differently. Take a listen. Sarah. Huh? What is God's name? Howard. Who? Howard. Howard? How do you know his name is Howard? Because? Because what? Our Father, the Lord of Heaven, Howard be thy name. Howard be thy name. Howard be thy name. Howard be thy name. I mean, it's obvious. Obvi. <laughs> Come on. Now, the next time you hear that prayer, are you going to remember this little yeah, prayer? Howard be thy Howard name. Howard be thy name. I love that. And good for her. She knows the Lord's Prayer already. She does. It continues. Your kingdom come, 
so much meaning in three little words. Right, let's start by imagining a world where God was the king and his rules were followed. That's kind of how things were back in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. When humans disobeyed God, the world was ruined. In some ways, to say, your kingdom come, is related to the end of the world where Jesus will return, evil will be dealt with and God's kingdom will be re-established. But also, Jesus came to teach us all about God's kingdom and in this way brought God's kingdom to earth. It is also saying that if we could live as God wants us to, we could bring a little bit of heaven to earth. So these three words relate to Jesus, he has come, to our own life, let's live how God wants us to, and to the future when God's kingdom will reign again. Your will be done. Another phrase packed with meaning, but essentially for anyone praying this prayer, they are aligning themselves with God's will rather than their own. Easier said than done. I'm thinking of teachers when we're in department meetings and making decisions about how we're going to do something, maybe assessments. We sometimes have to realign ourselves with what is best for the students rather than what is best for our workload. This part of the prayer is a reminder to believers to commit themselves to God's will before they pray, rather than having their own will in mind. A little whimsical story from my childhood to illustrate. When I was a young girl, I used to go to bed every night and pray to God that when I woke up and opened my wardrobe, it would be full of princess dresses. Every morning, with the innocent faith of a child, I would open my wardrobe door expectantly, only to find my own normal, disappointing, second-hand clothes inside. We have to consider whether princess clothes were God's will or mine. I think God was teaching me several important lessons here. One, God is not a magic genie who grants my every wish. Two, princess dresses would only have given me temporary happiness, based on shallow notions of appearance. Three, I would have soon grown out of them. Three, such desires were the workings of a sexist process of socialisation and were not my authentic desire leading to personal empowerment. What I should have prayed, according to God's will, is God, help me to find my inner worth not based on external appearances. On earth as it is in heaven. So clearly heaven is a place where God's will is supreme. Unsurprisingly then, in such place, there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more mourning, with joys unlike anything we've experienced on earth, with perfect bodies and the most natural world with no destruction of the planet, enmity or evil. Goodness me, can we imagine if earth was as it is in heaven? And what do you think we need to do to create such a place? So, now we have praised God and aligned ourselves to God's will, we can now ask for things. Note, there are five sentences in this prayer focused on God, and only four focused on ourselves. That is not a coincidence. But look at the nature of what we should ask for. Give us today our daily bread. Not frivolous, unnecessary things but the things we need to live on, our daily needs. I think it is interesting here with the word daily that there is an insinuation that we should focus on the present, not the past, not the future. 
This relates to a verse later on in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus tells us not to worry about anything, but more about that in the next episode. Also notice the use of the word us. This further suggests that this prayer is designed to be prayed together with other believers, along with the first line, our Father. Either that or it is encouraging believers to pray for the needs of others as well as themselves. This type of prayer is called intercession, when you pray for the needs of somebody else. The idea that this prayer was designed to be prayed communally is reconfirmed throughout the rest of the prayer. It uses us, our and we, not I and me. It continues. And forgive us our debts. Now, many versions of this prayer talk about sins. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus doesn't actually use the word sin. He is talking about debt, something we owe. Now, it is possible that sin is a debt and there is imagery in the Bible which does see sin as a debt. It talks about Jesus paying the price for our sin. You pay for your sin with death, but Jesus paid that price. He died. So it's not wrong to translate it as sin rather than debt. But I think it's interesting to explore the notion of debt too. How many of us think the world owes us something, whether it is a partner or a child or a well-paid job or a bigger house or a better body? This line could be about being content. If we link it to what has been said before, God is in charge. God's will leads to happiness. Don't worry about anything. You will get the important things. Don't spend your life feeling you should have more. Be content. As we also have forgiven our debtors. So yes, this could be about forgiving people for the things that they do wrong against you. And I think most Christians today believe that if they expect God to forgive them, they should therefore forgive others. Otherwise, they become like the hypocrites Jesus was talking about before, that they expect God to forgive them, but have no intention of forgiving certain other people. But it could also be about holding grudges, believing people owe you things, having unrealistic expectations of people. And lead us not into temptation. I've always found this interesting. Was God going to lead us into temptation and we're asking him not to? If we think about what we said at the beginning of this episode, that prayer is not for God, it is for the prayer. This means that God wasn't planning on leading us into temptation. It's simply reminding the prayer that God is going to protect you from it. I also don't think this means temptation won't ever come your way because you've prayed this prayer. I mean, the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis did look amazing. And it was right there in the middle of the garden for everyone to see. I think this line is instructing believers to ask God for help to resist temptation that will inevitably come your way. But deliver us from the evil one. Now, I'm not going to lie. This line had me stumped. Some translations have deliver us from evil rather than the evil one. But what does this idea of deliver mean? The word deliverance means to be set free from something. So Jesus is telling believers to ask God to help set them free from evil. But what does that mean? Now, at the time, there was very little known about psychology and the workings of the mind. But we understand now that actions are habitual. If you are used to doing something which is considered sinful in Christianity, being judgmental or lustful or lying or hateful, then you can feel trapped in these behaviours. Another flippant example from my childhood. 
I became a Christian when I was 11. And up until that point, I'd said, oh my God, quite regularly. When I became a Christian, it became quite clear to me that I wasn't allowed to do this. It was called blasphemy and that I would probably go to hell if I did it. So I had to try and stop doing it. But trying to stop saying a phrase that you have said for 10 or 11 years is actually incredibly difficult. When I said it, it wasn't because I was trying to be bad. It was just a habit I'd got into. I had to change it to, oh my goodness. Every now and again, I'd say, oh my godness, which was a conflation of the two. But eventually I stopped using it. If you are used to doing something which is considered sinful in Christianity, being judgmental or lustful or lying or hateful, then you can feel trapped in these behaviours. However, I think most believers would understand this literally as being free from Satan, who is going to constantly tempt you to do the wrong thing. If we put the two lines together, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus is simply suggesting that Christians are going to need help not to sin and to ask God for support in this, either by avoiding temptation or having the strength to resist it when it arrives. This section ends with these words. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, the original word here is mistakes, not sins. And I think this is an important distinction. I think there is a belief that sin is conscious and we shouldn't do it. And if we sin, we are evil. Think about what Jesus says later while on the cross. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Most people who cause others suffering don't do it consciously. We don't wake up and consciously want to hurt others. We often don't know what we're doing. We make mistakes. God sees our sins as mistakes, not evil. Now, if we see others' wrongdoings as mistakes, maybe it's easier to forgive them. This is a really good prayer to study in the Christian Practices section of the GCSE. In the lesson on prayer and worship, students need to know the distinction between liturgical and non-liturgical prayer and worship. Liturgical means read from a book altogether. Non-liturgical means made up or free. The Lord's Prayer is an example of liturgical worship because it is often said together verbatim in church services by all members of the congregation. Goodness me, that was an overly poncy sentence. All I meant was that everyone says it together word for word in church. You may want to annotate the prayer with students unpacking each line, but I'm not sure this is entirely necessary for the requirements of the syllabus. They simply need to know its existence as an example of a liturgical form of prayer and worship. If they said, one type of worship is liturgical prayer, this is where they pray the same prayer from a book, an example of this is the Lord's Prayer as said by Jesus in the Bible, that would be quite enough. However, it does serve as a source of authority that can be quoted in the questions that require this. And this extends beyond the Christian Practices Unit. The first line, our Father in heaven, can be used to support a belief in God's love or of the existence of an afterlife. Give us today our daily bread can be used to support a belief that Christians shouldn't be rich in teachings about poverty. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us could be used to support a belief in forgiveness or in lessons about attitudes to criminals. I think because of the rhythm of this prayer, it's quite easy for students to remember and many of them would have recited it as children. 
It is unknown whether the original version of the prayer, most commonly believed to have been written in Greek, had the same rhythm. But considering the Beatitudes have a poetic rhythm to it, and how rhythm helps people to remember things, it would make sense that this prayer was designed to be rhythmic and in places alliterated. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, most churches today add a little bit on the end, for thine is the power, the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This section was added later, maybe the first century or so, and was not in the original Bible version of the prayer. It was quite a common custom for Jewish prayers to have something at the end like this. So over time, this has become part of the prayer. In the book of Luke, a shortened version of this prayer is said as a response to a request by the disciples to teach them how to pray. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, as we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Maybe Luke misremembered it, or maybe Luke embellished it. It might even be that Jesus said it twice, once in the Sermon on the Mount, and then he reminds his believers about that prayer when they ask him how to pray. Luke's version is just before Jesus tells people to ask God for things. Ask and you will receive, knock and the door will be opened to you. Now, it is unclear whether Jesus meant this prayer to be recited verbatim for all eternity, or whether it was the structure which was important. Start with praising God. Then pray to know God's will, not your own. Then ask for what you need. Then ask for forgiveness. Then ask for protection. If you are not a believer, it is sometimes fun to find an equivalent ritual in your own life. Could you start each day by focusing on something bigger than yourself, for example, kindness to humans or the environment? Then consider how you could bring about something positive relating to this. Then think about what it is you need in your life in that moment. This is sometimes known as manifestation. Then deal with anything you need to forgive in yourself or others. Then focus on problems or challenges you need to overcome in your life. And set a resolve that you know that you can get over them. This is sometimes called visualisation. It's actually quite a lovely ritual which I think would benefit anyone. Now, there was something on Facebook once where the Lord's Prayer was translated directly from Aramaic to English rather than from Aramaic to Koine Greek to Latin to English. Now, remember that most people believe it was originally written in Greek, but certainly would have been translated into Latin and then into English. This translation is from a document from the 19th century, and it says that the original apparently translates as the following. O cosmic bertha of all radiance and vibration, soften the ground of our being and carve out a space within us where your presence can abide. Fill us with your creativity so that we may be empowered to bear the fruit of your mission. Let each of our actions bear fruit in accordance with our desire. Endow us with the wisdom to produce and share what each being needs to grow and flourish. Untie the tangled threads of destiny that bind us as we release others from the entanglement of past mistakes. Do not let us be seduced by that which would divert us from our true purpose but illuminate the opportunities of the present moment. For you are the ground and the fruitful vision, 
the birth, power and fulfilment, as all is gathered and made whole once again. And so it is. There are other versions too. O Bertha, Father Mother of the Cosmos, you create all that moves in light. Focus your light within us, make it useful, as the rays of a beacon show the way. Unite our I can to yours, so that we walk as kings and queens with every creature. Create in me a divine cooperation, from many selves, one voice, one action. Grant what we need each day in bread and insight. Forgive our hidden pasts, the secret shames as we consistently forgive what others hide. Deceive neither by the outer nor the inner. Free us to walk your path with joy. From you is born all ruling will, the power and life to do so. The song that beautifies all from age to age it renews. Amen. There is some debate as to how reliable these translations are but I would urge you to examine the original language Jesus used because any translation is going to be biased by the priorities and beliefs at the time. But also remember this, never ask whether the Bible is true, but look for the truth within the Bible. In the next episode, we are going to explore some of the other mini teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, including murder, adultery, divorce, not worrying, not judging others, loving your enemies. So please join me. My name is Louisa Jane Smith, and this has been the RE Podcast. The podcast for those of you who think RE is boring, but it is not. It creates a model and a structure to start our day positively and creating a more beautiful life. But thank you so much for listening to me for the life out of you.